The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Thank you for the truths that we just sang of there, have been prayed and sung of before all through this morning, that you are a God of mercy and grace, who saves, who welcomes, who receives. These are great truths, and we thank you for them, and we pray that you would now help us to, to contemplate them, to understand them, to to let them come to us in whatever way is necessary for whatever place each one of us sits in at this moment. Some of us are further away than others, probably. Some of us have heard this and regard it as, as sweet, and for some of us, maybe it's meaningless right now. We're across a spectrum. Would you cause the truths sung of and prayed about and now read about and preached about, will you cause those truths to come and to rest upon each one of us in the spot where we are, make them real and sweet and personal and life-changing to the praise of your glorious grace? Please do that for us now, Father. You send your spirit here to this room to have, to have control over all the little things like atmosphere and noise and over the, the massive unseen things like the attitudes of our hearts and minds. Spirit of God, will you, will you hold us here? Will you make clear the truth? Will you call us back to reunite us with this great and glorious God? Thank you. As we said, you are good. Thank you. Have your way with us, Lord. Lift up the sun and build your church. It's in the name of Jesus, our great Savior, that we pray. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 15, where we continue looking at one of Jesus's most well-known set of parables. As we saw last week, there are actually three parables in this chapter, all of them closely related, all told to a group of grumbling Pharisees and scribes who were sinfully complaining, criticizing Jesus. Why? Because, verse 1, Tax collectors and sinners in large numbers were drawing near to hear Jesus and his response. Verse 2, he received them and ate with them. He, he enjoyed table fellowship with them. He welcomed them in. He embraced them, hung out with them, talked with them, these sinners and tax collectors. That's two groups of people. We've seen them before in Luke. And as you recall last week, tax collectors in that day were kind of like powerful, legally protected thieves. As they, they, 
robbed people with, with taxation laws. So everybody hated them. And sinners, that term is a special term, not a compliment. It's, it's a special term. It doesn't just mean somebody who has committed a sin. It means people who in some way live in and embrace some sort of an open, known, egregious, sinful lifestyle, usually something immoral. So it, it's not a compliment. They are people who are regarded as particularly bad and evil in some way, set apart. That's how society treated them. But Jesus, in fact, sees all alike, all people alike, as equally alienated from God, lost. Both those that society regards as good, those that society regards as bad, and everybody in between, all alike, he sees everybody as lost, needing to be sought after and found. And that's what he's doing as he sits and eats with those who think themselves good, like the Pharisees, previous chapter or tax collectors and sinners, like mentioned here. He is seeking out people, everybody, good and bad, pursuing them all alike in love with this kindness of the gospel, his attitude towards them and his appeal to them. He's appealing to them with the kindness of the gospel. It was a clear point made in the first two parables. God pursues people, lost people of all sorts, to bring them back home. And when he does bring them back home, second main theme from last week, it is for great joy. It is a time of great rejoicing as, as the lost are found and all of heaven celebrates with them and God himself celebrates as his saving power and his saving goodness is displayed. Rejoicing over and over again, we saw it. For I have found what I lost, a sheep, a coin, a person, he seeks and rejoices over every person who repents. And that's what carries us into our third parable for this morning. Still spoken to the same group of grumbling Pharisees, and very similar in a number of points, similar to the first two, but it adds in some other, some, some new things which are important, some additional content. So I'll pick up reading in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. A, a long text, a very familiar one, People write songs about this text. It's well known to us, and it's a sweet passage. Here we are in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and before you, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Luke chapter 15. Make two observations from this. Here's the first. God's response to repentance is astonishingly merciful and gracious. God's response to repentance is astonishingly merciful and gracious. This parable is much in common with the previous two, but it is nonetheless different. It puts us in a different place in this process of lost person found. There's kind of a process there, and the first two parables are more towards the front end of the process, and this is more towards the back end. But it is still about lost found. It says that twice in verses 24 and 32. The son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we got the, the same general process, but different points. In the first two parables, the emphasis falls on seeking, on pursuing the lost. The shepherd and the woman lost their valuables and they go searching. But here, the lost one is just let go. Just left to go his own way. And there's nothing explicitly said about the father, who obviously is parallel in God, seeking him out. Hinted at, perhaps, if you want to read through this and kind of look for things, hinted at, perhaps, in the, the providential occurrence of a famine at just the right time. And his remembering of, of the goodness of his father's house and the, the, the abundance of his father's house and when he was in need. You can kind of see in there maybe some of how God seeks out people, but that's not emphasized. That was more in the first two parables. This emphasizes what happens once repentance has come. And it's important to know both of these things and to keep them both together theologically. Both that in the first parable, God seeks out to generate repentance, and then hear how he responds after repentance. We've got to keep both those things in mind and put them together, because if we don't, we might make a, a gigantic mistake. If we forget verses 1 to 10 and only read this parable, we might come to the conclusion 
that repentance comes from this person himself and that God just sits back and waits for him to come to his senses by himself, repent of himself, and find his own way back home. The point explicitly refuted in the first two parables. Coins and lost sheep don't find their way back home. That's why the shepherd and the woman have to go seek them. So we need both these things together, emphasizing the searching, the seeking that generates the repentance in the first two parables, and then to see how, what's emphasized here, how it is that God responds once repentance has come about. We need both these things together. And that response is indeed what's emphasized here. We have a, a son who has behaved in a highly offensive manner, asking for his portion of the inheritance before his father's dead. That's presumptuous today, let alone back then. L literally, the word is, I, I want my portion of your life. Literally, now. <laughs> okay. That's offensive. But the father gives it to him. He cashes it in. He cashes it in and then takes off the Gentile lands, witness the presence of the pigs, to squander it in reckless living. To live as a sinner, to use that word. And then verse 14, when he'd spent everything along comes a severe famine and he begins to be in need. And in 15 and 16, we get this brief sketch of the descent where he finds himself so desperate that he sells himself out to a foreigner as a low-level laborer feeding unclean pigs and starving while he does it. He's sent out to the fields. He is cast out out into the extremes of the foreign country and no one gave him anything and he is alone and destitute and miserable and hungering in verse 17 when he came to his senses. In my father's house, the lowest servants have plenty of food, but I'm here about to perish. Maybe I should turn back, repent, so that I won't perish and go home. Mindful of the danger of perishing and the hope of food back at his father's house, he repents. And it is genuine repentance. Look at this. It is humble and honest. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. That's what I have done. And there's no but, there's no but, no shifting of the blame, just that's what I have done. And it claims no rights and no privileges, no I deserve or you should because, quite the contrary, I deserve nothing. I'm not worthy of anything. It stands on no rights, claims no privilege, and just casts himself at the mercy of the Father. I shouldn't be regarded as your son. He asks for the lowest of low jobs, just a day labor. It doesn't even have to be a regular hired hand. Just a day labor with no security, with no promise. Just take me back, please, to feed me at least one day. This is what repentance looks like. It is humble. It is acknowledging fully the wrong. It is standing upon nothing and casting oneself at the mercy of the other. And with all of that, now we finally come to the point. Why he told this, middle of verse 20. The astonishing mercy and grace of the Father. 
with that attitude, with that, with that humble, honest, genuine, repentant attitude, the Son arises and comes to the Father, but while he is still a long way off. But, that's an interesting word. But, it's a contrast. What's going to happen? But, he's got this attitude of repentance. We just see it. We know he's genuinely repentant. But, what's going to happen? Is the Father going to refuse to see him? Is the Father going to say, oh, I see him coming. Tell him I'm not here. I'm busy. I don't want to see him. I don't have any time for that one. Forewarned, is he going to shut the door? We don't know what's going to happen. Astonishing. Astonishing. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. You've read this like a thousand times. If, you, if you've been around the church, you've heard this forever. <laughs> Listen to it again. The father got slapped in the face, robbed, and here comes the thief. And he has compassion on him. Not indignation, not anger, not what does he want now? Or I knew it, back for more money. That's how, that's how we respond sometimes. He has compassion on him. My son... He's brokenhearted over the brokenness of his beloved son, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Even today, older people don't run very often. It's not a pretty thing. It's almost kind of the line between older and younger. Do you still run, yes or no? Even today. Let alone back then. An older man, a household head, who would need to gather up his robes and expose his naked legs and kind of waddle down the road. It's exposing himself to an obvious household full of ridicule, particularly because he's going to go embrace the guy who just slapped him in the face, and everybody knows it, who treated him with such disdain. But the father does not care. He runs to the dirty, pigsty-smelling son, and literally throws himself on his neck. Very graphic use of language. It means he embraced him and he kissed him. But he throws himself on his neck. Driven by compassion and full of love, he's hugging him and kissing him and hugging him and kissing him. It is an alarming, gripping reunion right there in the road, and it is impossible to miss the emotion in it and the father's verdict. I wonder, how does the father feel about the son right now? What does he think about him? Any guesses? I think it looks like he has received him and is delighted that he's here. You can't miss that. You can't miss that. He loves him. He has compassion on him. Mercy overwhelms the situation. He is not going to give the son what he should get. Rejection. The son, repentant, has come back and the Father receives him, embraces him, kisses him, and hugs him in love. But then he speaks, only for a bit, but he speaks, starts into what he's going to say, verse 22. Then a second but. He begins to say, Father, I have sinned against you. 
And the father, maybe he interrupts him, doesn't quite, it's not quite clear, does he interrupt him or not, but there's a second but here. And again, you wonder what? I'm not worthy to be your son. Yes, yes, that's right, I know, but I'm making you one anyway. I know you're not worthy of this, but I'm making you one anyway. Quickly, the best robe, rings, sandals. He's immediately dressed like a son, not just covered up, not just clothed, dressed like a son, adorned with a ring of honor. And the father orders the fattened calf kill. That's, that's kind of like the reserve food. The thing you're keeping around for the best, for the celebration, for the party, whenever that may come, you've got to have one on hand. So he slaughters the fattened calf. Because, verses 23 and 24, and then again in the summary of verse 32, it is fitting to celebrate. Not just permissible, appropriate. Fitting, he says. It is fitting to celebrate. What are we keeping the calf for but this? The grace of the Father overflowing. The, the mercy does not reject him. And the grace does more than just say, okay, here's the broom. The grace lavished on him. The son knew that his father was good, so he dared to come back in the first place. But he didn't dream that the father was this merciful, that he was this gracious they would give him exceedingly, abundantly, far more than he dared to ask for. But he did. He restored him and celebrates his coming back. There is great rejoicing that sweeps the whole household because the dead one lives and the lost one is found. And look closely at verse 24. The father takes this upon himself. It is not only that the dead one is alive and the lost one is found, but it's personalized. My son was dead and is alive. And the servant, when he tells the story in verse 27, the father received him back safe and sound. He's been worried about him being harmed, but he's back safe and sound. It's the father that received him. The father got his son back, and all of his anxieties are passed away because he's safe. That's the astonishing mercy and grace of the Father? Jesus tells us, or we'll get, obviously, behold the astonishing mercy and grace of God the Father. That's the obvious point. Marvel at this and believe it. That's why Jesus tells this parable to press home this truth. This is the attitude of God in response to repentance. In response to you. He's not just responding to the abstract concept, responding to you. It's his arms around your neck, not the theory of arms around one's neck. But you. If you would repent, this is what you'd find from the Almighty One. So have you, do you sit where you are right now, 
across a spectrum do you sit somewhere in this place of I have totally messed up my life? Down to I'm a little off. Somewhere in between. Wreckage, error. There's a spectrum there, but to each one, this, this wants to press upon each one of us. Have you in some way messed up your life? Have you rebelled against God the Father or just walked away a little bit and strayed? In some, some proud, self-determining, self-authoritative way, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live on my own hook. I'm going to run my own show. Thank you. Can I have the resources? Can I have the keys to the car? I'm out. Have you begun to see then that that doesn't work? Are you yet in a spot of in need? Have you come to your senses? Are you coming to your senses? Arise and go to him and be humble and repentant and be driven to do that by trusting in what Jesus has deliberately highlighted in this little story, vividly shaped, created, so as to show you something about God. What will you find when repentance, you arise and go back to him? You will find compassion, eager embracing. You will find affection and love. You will not find condemnation. You will find mercy. And you will not find just begrudging tolerance. You will find astonishing, gracious blessing. God is inviting you, wooing you, calling you. Come back, look, look at what you'll find from me. He has to do that because we sense, we, we feel inside of us, repentance is a little bit risky. Even between people, but let alone before God, it, it's a little bit risky to come clean and say, that's what I have done, and to stand upon nothing. It's vulnerable. It feels very threatening. It's an affront to our pride. To come completely clean and say, I own that, no ifs and buts qualifiers, that's me. And what I'm going to stand upon is nothing. <laughs> How vulnerable. Won't he crush me if I come like that? If I surrender? Isn't this where every civil war gets hung up? If we lay down our arms, they're going to kill us. So we don't lay down our arms. And the fighting continues. If I lay down my arms, if I come like this before him, won't the sword fall on my head? That's what he should do. That's what I would do. Won't he crush me if I come like that? And the answer is no, no, no. Because of how he dealt with and embraced his own dearly beloved son. Because he sent his own son away into the far country to earth. This isn't the first son that the father has sent away and embraced and brought back. He sent his own son to suffer for sin, not his own, but for others. And having suffered and died and hung on the cross alone, shunned and shamed, he was dead, and God the Father brought him back to life again. 
the story of the gospel. So that in mercy, so that in mercy, he does not have to drop the sword on you. And he won't. This is awesome. This is awesome. And more than he raised Christ from the dead and exalted him, reseated him in the position of authority, robe and sandal, and he is the exalted son. And so when you, repentant, are joined to him, you follow right along in his, in his tracks and become an object of not only mercy, but an object of grace. This is an astonishing God that calls to you to reach out to Christ for his mercy. And then to stand right where this son stands, right in the middle of the house, in the middle of a great big party, clothed in robes of honor and lavished in the love of a great father. That's how God responds to the repentant. So turn from yourself and come to him. And that's, 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 again, across that whole spectrum of to whatever degree you have wandered away, to whatever degree you have left him. And some here are, are not believers at all. You, you maybe are, are considering Christianity. This is for you. And maybe some of you, you've been Christians forever. You are certain of it. But as you think about it right now, wandering describes you off in the far country, or at least often halfway to the far country, wandering. And his appeal is, is across the board to everybody, wherever you are, however much of, of distance there is between you and God, this appeal is always, come. I had a professor one time years ago who said, in the Bible, the right answer is always repent. Whatever the question is, the right answer is always repent. Wherever you are, the right answer is always repent. And when you repent, this is what you find. Wherever you are, whoever you are, repent. Give up, come back, and what you will find is a God of astonishing mercy and grace. the best news there is in the world. Know that for yourself. And of course, realize that that is to be our attitude towards others too, when they repent. So know that for yourself. That when I repent, and I come to this God, what I find from him for me is this astonishing mercy and grace, this, this removing of my sin, this putting of my sin on Jesus, and this pouring on me the blessing of the kingdom. That's what I experience, not for yourself. And realize that's also supposed to be my attitude towards other people, too. That's what brings us to the second point. The second observation is this. The attitude of performance-based worthiness will cause you to miss the rejoicing. The attitude 
of performance-based worthiness will cause you to miss the rejoicing, to miss the heart of the party. Verse 24 ends with joyful celebration, similar to how the first two parables ended. Great joy in the presence of God over the person who repents. But there's more here. This is a particularly important addition to this parable. Just like the grumbling Pharisees, there's somebody here who's not happy. Verse 28 or 25, the older son is in the field working. As he comes home, he hears the party, and after a bit of investigation, he finds out what's going on. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. You can almost kind of see that message delivered from a servant running by with a bottle of wine. What's going on? Oh, your, your, your brother's back. Your father killed the calf. We're having a great big party. What? And he was angry. Literally, but he was angry. Contrast again. This is unexpected. The son was angry. Everybody on the property is inside the house dancing and singing, playing the tambourine, and enjoying the best food they could find. And this guy is angry. And he refused to go in. He stayed outside the joy-filled house with the feast, outside the celebration, royally hacked off. That's surprising. As is the father's next move. Kindly, the father condescends to come out to plead with the son. Try to coax him, to invite him to come in. And grammatically, this is a repeated entreaty over and over. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, it's, it's good, come on. He wants him in there too. But the son refuses and then he unloads. All my life I have performed properly. You got to hear it like that. This is not, well, you know, Dad, I, I did okay, you know, for it's. All my life, I did the right thing. That's what's going on here. I obeyed you. I served you. That's the tone. He's angry. I did the right thing. All my life. And then look what follows. But you never gave to me. Even a little animal. Something I'd need to have a, have a little fun with my friends. You never gave to me. You never. You've done wrong because I earned more than you gave me. I have deserved better than this. Certainly more than this worthless son of yours, this sinner. You hear that? Who squandered your property with prostitutes? Sinner. 
you gave to him. I can't even believe it. How wrong. How unjust you are. You should give to the one who's earned it to me. That's alarming. That's alarming. What he unloads is heavy criticism. Stemming from what I've I've called here in this point, performance-based worthiness. Do you hear it there? I have done, I have obeyed you, I have served you, so therefore I should get. He did not, therefore he should not get. And you've done wrong because you haven't played by these proper rules. Performance-based worthiness. He's unworthy because of what he's done. I'm worthy because of what I've done. And you're unworthy because of what you've done, Father. This is very common in the world, this attitude perspective, a belief that a person is worthy or is acceptable or righteous in the right or good or commendable based on the quality of his or her work performance. Based on behavior, effort, and outcome. This is very common in the world. And we have to acknowledge in some situations it's entirely appropriate Necessary. Think of like job performance evaluations or school exams. If, if you leave office, you're in this ridiculous spot like the local junior jazz where every player of every team gets an MVP trophy. Literally. That's ridiculous. If, if you leave off completely performance-based evaluation and worthiness, then then you're in this fake world. It is appropriate in some settings. But in other settings, like this one, the one under consideration here, the worthiness of people, the worthiness of people, the person, especially before God, that's the parallel being drawn by this parable. The parallel being drawn by the parable is the worthiness of people before God. And in that situation, this attitude of performance-based worthiness is completely wrong. And if you hold to it, you will miss the joy of God and his kingdom and his feast. Now, there is such a thing clearly as consequence. Notice how the father does remind the son, look, you've been with me the whole time. All that I have is yours. His return doesn't mean that I'm going to redivide the inheritance. You stayed, he took his portion, you've got the rest, and he's going to have lifelong consequences. You own all this. All that I have is yours. We're not going to revisit the inheritance. But, son, that being said, you have in fact totally misunderstood the ground of membership, the ground of membership in the family and the ground of acceptance and blessing from me. And, that being said, also you totally misunderstand the quality of your own performance. So you got two things wrong, son. First, you misunderstand, and this is fortunate for you, You misunderstand the ground of membership in the family and the ground of acceptance and the ground of blessing. 
You totally missed that. And in fact, you think you've performed well. Totally off on that, too. I mean, look, fathers are supposed to be like sons, but isn't it quite obvious, feeling all the heat coming off you, that you don't have my heart? You don't have my perspective. You don't have my love. You don't have my values. You don't call what is right what I call right. You don't call what is wrong what I call wrong. You got it all backwards. You're not like me. On the outside, maybe you have done some things that you think line up with me and, and are, are, are supportive of me. But in your heart, you've been bitter and angry. And you now accuse me of doing wrong. Do you see here that the son's attitude, this perspective, that worthiness, acceptance, welcoming, delightful blessing and celebration is and should be based on one's performance? Do you see that here in the son? And do you then also see that Jesus puts that all so very clearly, so very vividly on his lips and spells it out so as to drive a stake into its heart and prove it wrong. That's not how God works with people. Perform well enough and you will be worthy to be welcomed in. No. It is clearly wrong. And do you also see the son's evaluation of himself? Because we stumble on this point too. We often look on the outward appearance of things and say, there, look, I am keeping the letter of the law. And we fail to see in the heart bitterness and alienation, distance, lost on the inside, tombs on the inside, whitewashed and clean on the outside. That's who he is. That's what we struggle with. He's bitter on the inside, indignant and accusing. He's so unlike the repentant younger brother, and he's so tragically not in the party like the repentant younger brother. Don't go there. Jesus tells this parable like this. I mean, he, he made this up. Just like this, on purpose. And he shapes it ever so carefully so as to make clear what is what is just so very important, that performance-based worthiness is wrong. So don't go there. Some of us, when we go there, we're, we're going to miss out. For some, maybe you go there and you will miss the party entirely by which I mean you'll miss heaven. Ever since the Garden of Eden, human beings have believed that if I do good and do it well, then I will be acceptable to God. And that feels right to us because for a very brief moment in the Bible, that's the way it was. It's like the first two pages. And then in Genesis comes the, what's called the fall into sin and in that moment we were inside broken something happened to people and ever since then we've been born with 
and grow up with fallen natures, that is, natures that are corrupted, that are twisted in sin and twisted by sin, are actually bound in sin. And so the problem that we all face, all of us alike, is that we are sinners. Not in the sense that this passage uses the word to describe like really bad people. But we're all alike sinners in our hearts. And that's why we sin. We are the kind of people who are bent away from God. That's what our nature is. And so therefore what comes out, what happens is sin in the heart and sin in our behaviors. Kind of like we are the kind of people who need oxygen to live so we breathe every few seconds. We do not breathe every few seconds and therefore then become the kind of people who need oxygen to live. That's nonsense. We are the kind of people who are bent towards, who are inclined towards sin, and that's why we sin. And all we can do is, is talk about the behaviors. We can't ever talk about change, touch the inside, the nature. We can't ever shape up our, our, ourselves into being worthy. The Bible says there's no one worthy. No, not one. All have sinned because we're all sinners. That's what we are. And bless God that God is what God is. That he pursues sinners. Good ones and bad ones and those in the middle. He pursues people. Maybe even like right now. He might be, be pursuing you right now at this moment. I, I don't know where you are, what you're thinking about. But maybe he's pursuing you right now by making clear of this issue. I have a problem in here. And what he calls me to is, is repentance and what he promises when I come is mercy and grace. That's the astonishing God that calls you and entreats you to give up your attitude of performance-based worthiness. So don't miss that. Don't base your worthiness on your performance. Base your worthiness on Christ's performance. Christ alone did not sin and went to the cross for sinners. That's how you get in. Trust him. It'd be a tragedy to miss it because you still hold on to, no, I think I'm going to perform my way in. You can't. You can't ever be worthy by performance. Only Christ's work on the cross gives us new natures, creates a new life in us that grows us and changes us. We can't do that ourselves. So don't miss that. But then, I know I'm speaking to a room full of people, largely most of us here, most of us are Christians. I know that. But this mindset, this attitude of performance-based worthiness, performance-based acceptance, it is so common to us all that it's, it's, it's very likely to, to surface in Christians too. Even in churches, too. We all, we all reckon, we all know, if, if you're a Christian, you understand very clearly, this is how you became a Christian, I am not worthy to get into heaven. I cannot get into heaven by my own performance, for sure. But then what happens often, and, and we, we deny this with our words, thankfully, because you know better, but we like lapse into. What often happens is that we say, I know I can't get into heaven, 
I can't earn my way into heaven by my performance. But I think God's approval, his, his posture towards me today is based on my performance. Is he judging me worthy right now? I don't know. How am I doing? That's a difficulty that we still have, even as Christians now. And if we walk in those footsteps and along that path, we'll, we'll miss the joy of communion with God. We'll miss the joy of communion with other people. In, in a way, we'll be standing outside of the party. So think about this. You, you can see something of this right here between these two brothers. The attitude, this is, this is the mindset, what lies behind judgmentalism. And if there is anything the world thinks about Christians, it's that they're judgmental. Why is that? Because we spend a lot of time being judgmental. And because they misunderstand judgmentalism. Yes, for sure. But let's, let's be honest. We have given to people and... <laughs> We've given to people lots of reasons to think we're judgmental because we are judgmental. We often behave or talk more like the Pharisees here than we would like to. Pointing our fingers at the sinners. That, that's true. Not always, and, and not as much as other people say it's true of us, but it is true of us to some degree. Those on the outside and even within the church. There, there is something behind that something behind this judgmentalism which which leads to an alienation between people and us them idea we look at a person we think she's messed up we judge yep i guess so or we feel yeah that was offensive to me and then right there plugging into worthiness based on performance not worthy should be alienated, separated from, set aside, standoffish. Now again, there is such a thing as consequence. And some of those things are wrong and should be spoken to. And there is such a thing as, as wise self-protection caution. Yes, of, yes, of course, sure. But Jesus commanded us, did he not? Love your enemies even. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies do not judge the people. Judge the things they do, but not the person. What gets difficult for us, what leads us to judge the person and stand off from an alien and makes it very difficult for us to find ourselves comfortably at a table with tax collectors and sinners is this attitude of performance-based worthiness. So check yourself. If you find yourself struggling to love others and failing to forgive others, someone who's done you wrong or has in some way hurt you. And what you might find back behind that is I'm judging their worthiness based on their performance. What God calls us to here. Indeed, to evaluate the performance and say that's right or that's wrong, that needs to be addressed, but to do that in a way that says, but I value you still and this is double if you're already in the church this, this is a person who is valued accepted embraced received delighted in by god the father and i'm put off from her from him mm, that's not right
it actually ironically leaves us outside of God's joy, and that's outside of fellowship with other people. So it has things to say about how we relate with other people, and it says something about how we relate to ourselves. When we hold on to this attitude, performance-based acceptance or worthiness, you hold on to that, it leaves you yourself working and serving and obeying to earn your worthiness. And there's no joy in that. Here's a God who has already declared you as worthy as you'll ever be. And if you're working to become worthy, in other words, saying, I, I don't know if I believe that, I better, I better somehow find something to stand on that'll make me feel like I'm worthy. Well, then one or two things are going to happen, probably both. Pride and fearful insecurity. They're, they're kind of like flip sides of the coin. Pride, if I'm trying to find something to stand on to make myself worthy, there, I did it. But now I'm immediately worried about, am I going to be able to do it again? And I'm only as good as my last performance. That's a terrible way to live. If my worth before God and before you is based on how well I've done within the last minute, the last five minutes, the last ten minutes, there's a treadmill there that's just going to eat the heart out of your life. What's behind that working, that joyless working, that striving after, that, that performance is, is a mistaken belief about what makes you worthy, where your worth is found, where your identity is rooted it's in a God who saved you and declared you son, declared you daughter, not declared you good performer, well done. Ironically, this is the strength that a Christian can have in all those other situations where performance bases are valid. At your job, when you get a negative one when you don't get into that university, when nobody will go on a date with you. How do you, how do you stand up there? Where's the strength to stand under that? The, the strength to stand under that is, is from getting this right, of realizing, no, I stand worthy, not because of what I am or what I've done, but because of who is, he is and what he's done in me. I can stand under that rejection. I can stand under the unfairness of that. I can stand under the no again, no again, no, again, okay. There's a great strength here for the Christian. When we get straight, we get straight. Christ is what makes me worthy. It ironically frees you up to be a better performer. You can perform freely and happily. So come away from this mindset, Christian, and bask in the mercy of and grace of your God. Enjoy the joy of his celebration. He has welcomed you with open arms and will never leave you and won't forsake you. He won't throw you out. As that sinks into your mind, it drives us on to to live for him and to, and to actually serve him and obey him rightly. 
not to get his acceptance, but because of his acceptance and all that his acceptance means for our future. There's a great freedom in this. As a Christian, no. You're worthy because of what Christ has done, because of how Christ received you in mercy and grace. Let me pray. Father, this is grounds for great rejoicing. Thank you for it. And thank you for telling us this story with details, with, with perspectives that are, that are made vivid by the characters that you created. You, you have done us a kindness in that, so thank you. But now, Father, will you send your spirit so that as we, as we sing and then, and then eventually leave here, that as we go out, would you send your spirit to go with us, to free us, to cause us to rejoice in what you have done and not to try to do it ourselves. Father, you are kind, and I pray for this kindness now going forward, that you would remind us who you are and of what you have done. And that if there are some here, Lord, who, who haven't yet fully come to understand this, haven't yet fully closed with you, would you, would you call them in? Would you press upon them clearly and vividly a father weeping for joy, embracing push that image into their minds and, and with it move them to faithful, trusting repentance. Thank you for your goodness. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.